When I was a little kid, I, I remember we had a table grace that we would say, and it went like this. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food, right? How many of you grew up with that one? A few? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I always wondered why after saying God is great, we said God is good. It, it seemed to me that great is very good. You know, I, I grew up in the era of Tony the Tiger, you know, advertising for sugar-frosted flakes, and he said what? They're great, right? They're, they're very, very good. And so we, you know, we say this table grace, God is great, God is good. It seems like you're coming down from great to just good. What's going on here? And it strikes me now, many, many years later, that that little table grace may be a lot more profound than we might think. You see, we generally speak of God in terms of his attributes, the attributes of God, characteristics of God, what he's like, descriptions of who he is. So if you pick up a, a systematic theology book and, and open it up, you'll see lots of attributes of God. And they're categorized in various ways. Uh, the classic categorization of them is, is communicable and incommunicable attributes. Communicable ones are ones that he shares with us, uh, things like uh, he is wise. Well, we can have wisdom. He is good. Well, we, we can be good. You know, he, he is loving. We can be loving. These are attributes that he can share with us. And the incommunicable ones are ones that, that he doesn't share with us. He is holy, uniquely holy. He is unchangeable. We're not. And yet when you, when you think about that categorization, those two, communicable and incommunicable, you, you realize that it breaks down. It breaks down. You know, he is holy. That's incommunicable. But then he says, be holy, for I am holy. So, so we're to reflect some degree of that. We'll never reflect it in all of its, its wholeness, its fullness. And so I, I ran across a different way of categorizing God's attributes a number of years ago. I was reading a theology book by a guy named Millard Erickson, and, and he defines or separates the attributes of God into attributes of greatness and attributes of goodness. Attributes of greatness have to do with who he is in and of himself. Attributes of goodness have to do with who he is in relationship to us. Not bad. So God is great. God is good. Comes back to that table grace again. It's a lot more profound than I ever thought that it was. Is there an attribute or two of God that you appreciate most or more than others? You may hear someone say, I, I like God's justice. I am so glad the bad guys get it in the end. You know? I am, I'm so glad that God is just. Or you'll hear somebody else say, I, I really appreciate God's love. I, I like God's love best. And you think about what influences a person's choice of what attributes they may like more than another. It might be someone's upbringing. 
It might be someone's education. It might be someone's political leanings that, that slant you toward one or another. It might be any of a number of things, but is there a danger in that? Is there a danger in having attributes of God that you like more than others? I think there is. I think we can end up trying to make God in our image. Uh, we can try to reshape him into what we want him to be, and so we can ignore certain things about his character and, and emphasize others. We need to realize uh, that um, though we may have a preference for one or two attributes of God, God is all of those things. And his attributes don't compete with one another. His holiness isn't at odds with his grace. His uh, justice doesn't clash with his mercy. In the passage of Scripture we're going to look at here this morning from John chapter 18, we're going to see three of his attributes in action, three of them in action. So I would invite you to take your Bible, and if you don't have a Bible, there's some guys in the back that are coming forward with some. Just catch their eye, and they'll hand you one, uh, just like this one right here, and I can even give you a page number. But it's so good when we have God's Word open in front of us so that we can see that... Uh, What's being said has its root in God's word. So um, we're going to look at, at John chapter 18, the first 11 verses, and it's on page 754 in uh, the Bible that we're handing out. And if you don't have one at home, take this home with you. We're glad to give it to you. So John chapter 18, uh, verse, uh, verses 1 through 11. And let me just say, as we look at John's gospel here, that John's gospel is different from the other three synoptic gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels, and the word means seen together. And uh, they have a level of detail in them that John often doesn't have. And I think it's because John assumes that, that we are familiar with those the synoptics. And so... He chooses to go more thematically and leaves out some detail that you may find in the other three. And so uh, I'm going to make brief reference to a couple of the synoptics as we go this morning, but I try to really let John speak for himself. So we'll fill in just a couple details from the others, but let's just look right now at John 18, verses 1 through 11. When he had finished praying... Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, Who is it you want? 
Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Let's just start with looking at the setting here. It says that after Jesus had finished praying, and that was the prayer we looked at in chapter 17 last week, that he left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. Uh, They were heading over to the Garden of Gethsemane. So on the map, you can see Jerusalem there on the left-hand side of the map, and out the, uh, the gate there leads across the Kidron Valley to Gethsemane, which is on the slope of the Mount of Olives. The Kidron Valley was uh, technically a, a wadi. It was, uh, it was a riverbed that, that only had water in it at certain times of the year, or the, the, the rainy times of the year. The rest of the time, it was pretty dry. But what's interesting about the Kidron Valley is that it, um, there was drainage from the temple into the Kidron. And uh, at Passover time, the Kidron ran red with blood. Uh, more than 200,000 lambs would be sacrificed over the Passover. And so fascinating that Jesus and his disciples on this night that he was going to be betrayed and given for us crossed over the Kidron uh, knowing that he would be shedding his own blood. They went to this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a regular place where they met. It was the perfect place to go now because uh, it was outside the city and away from the crowds. Jerusalem would would swell during this Passover season. And so it would be away from all of that. They could have some quiet, some privacy. But it would also make, make it the perfect place for the Jews and the soldiers to come and arrest Jesus. His popularity was high. To arrest him in the city would be to risk a riot. And so coming there to the Garden of Gethsemane, particularly at night, would serve them very well. It mentions here in in these verses that Judas was there, that he guided a detachment of Roman soldiers and, and some Jewish officials. And you wonder what may have motivated him to do that. The Jews had this expectation for a a military Messiah, someone who would help them shake off the Roman oppressors and establish their own independence. And uh, it could well be that that's what Judas was trying to do, trying to force Jesus' hand, as it were, to set up his kingdom uh, if he could bring about a confrontation with them that he might uh, set himself up. And so we see Roman soldiers and Jewish officials working together here. Jesus had quite a following at this point. It would be a threat to both of them. And so both of them would have a vested interest in having him removed. So that's the setting. 
Let's just take a look at what happened there. Because in this, I think we're going to see some of Jesus' attributes in action. Three things in particular that I think uh, we can see. First is, infinite in knowledge, he went out. Infinite in knowledge, he went out. Look at verse 4. It says, um, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Infinite in knowledge, he went out. Focus in for a moment on the word knowing. Knowing. Knowing all that was going to happen to him, he went out. Time for a little English lesson here. Knowing is what kind of word? It's a participle. Ah, the English majors among us are going, oh yeah, this is good. Uh, a participle has been described as a verbal noun. It's kind of a hybrid. It, uh, it, it has characteristics of both verb and noun in it. It's kind of a state of being, at least temporarily, and, and it's, it's action-oriented. So uh, hang in there with me. There's a point coming. Uh, there are at least a couple of ways to translate a participle. You can just leave it as an ing word, uh, participles show up that way. They're typically ing words, knowing. Um, but there are a couple of ways that, that they are most often translated. Uh, one is concessive and the other is causal. Concessive would be translated although. And so we, we might say, although he knew all that was coming to him, he went out. Or causal, we use the word because. Because he knew what was going to happen, he went out. Some translations just leave it in its ing form. And uh, the NIV does that here. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out. It could be either concessive or causal. Um, if you flip back just a few chapters to the foot washing in chapter 13, just, just a couple of pages back, there is a similar one, uses the same word, knowing. And in the ESV, English Standard Version, it says this, uh, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose up from the table. Um, so that's, uh, knowing, just left in its ing form. But the NIV uh, says this, he knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up, took off his outer clothing, wrapped the towel around his waist and washed their feet. Uh, he knew, so he got up. In other words, because he knew he got up. They render it as, as causal. And so here in, in chapter 18 again, uh, same word, knowing, knowing all that was going to happen to him, he went out. So it could be, although he knew all that was going to happen to him, he went out. Or it could be, because he knew all that was going to happen to him, he went out. Which is it? Well, it's interesting. Uh, I, I've often recommended checking out multiple translations so that you can see uh, the range of certain words. 
And as I was looking at this one this week, I, I saw in the uh, New Living Translation, uh, it says, Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. In other words, because, because he knew all that was going to happen to him, he stepped out. Here's the point. Jesus knew everything that was coming. He knew everything that was going to be happening to him. And he knew that what he was about to do had to be done for you and me to experience salvation. Our sin needed to be paid for. And only an infinite being, only God, could pay the infinite price of the sin of all humanity of all ages. And because he knew that, he went forward and stepped out between the soldiers and his sinful followers to take on the penalty of their sin and ours. Because he knew, he went. Now, if you were in Jesus' place, if you knew you were about to be arrested and tried and convicted and handed over to the Romans and flogged and crucified, what would you do with that knowledge? I know what I'd do. I'd want to run. I'd want to take care of myself. If I knew what Jesus knew, I'd want to protect myself. I'd want to use that knowledge to my own advantage. I think about the temptation of Jesus early in his ministry when, when Satan tempted him in the wilderness. What did Satan say to him? If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the son of God. Now, I think at that point, it wasn't just about hunger. He had gone 40 days without eating. But I think there's more to it than that. Satan is taunting him and saying, if you are who you claim to be, show it. Show it. Do something powerful to, to prove who you are. Next temptation, he would say, uh, if you are the Son of God, prove it by throwing yourself from the pinnacle of the temple. He could have done those things to prove his identity, but in doing those things, he would have violated his identity. It would have been a misuse of his power. Now, I'm pretty sure that if Satan, uh, that, that Satan would have wanted to see Jesus in the garden here in John 18 use his power to save himself rather than to pay for our sin. If you are the Son of God, if you do know all things, then you know what's about to happen and you can save yourself. So do that. But because... Because he was the son of God, he chose not to do that. Instead, he went out. The ESV, he came forward. He put himself between the armed soldiers and his followers. Infinite in knowledge, he went out. Second, infinite in power, he held back. Infinite in power, he held back. It's time now for a little Greek. Uh, this, this is my friend Ulysses. He's a little Greek. 
And so now that you've met him, you can say, I know a little Greek, okay? So, a little Greek. Bear with me, there's a point here too. What is it Jesus says in verse 5? In verse 5, when they ask him who they're looking for, you see it? Jesus, verse 4, knowing all that was going to happen, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Now, Jesus says, I am he. I am he. Now, some translations italicize the he. If you've got one in front of you that has the he in italics, that's one of them. Some will put a footnote on it and say something down at the bottom of the page about it. And what it will say at the bottom of the page is the he is not there in the original Greek. It is supplied to make good English out of what was good Greek. Okay? So in order for it to make better sense to us in English, they provide the he. Not there in the original Greek. In the original Greek, it's two words, ego, a me. Now you, you recognize ego, right? Me, myself, and I, ego. A me is a form of the word to be. I am. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am, he says. We have seen Jesus say, I am, again and again and again throughout the Gospel of John. Seven I am statements. Bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. We have looked at all of those. All of them bring us back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where God appears to Moses in the burning bush, calls him to go back to Egypt to set his people free, and Moses says, if they ask me who sent me, what will I tell them? And God says what? I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you to them. God is revealing there his sacred name, the great I am. All the way through John's gospel, Jesus has been making that claim. And in chapter 8, verse 58, he says it without anything completing the sentence. He says, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. Not I was, I existed before Abraham, but before Abraham was born, I am. I am the great I am. And what happens in the next verse? They pick up stones to stone him. Why? Because he's claiming to be God. That's blasphemy, right? Unless it's true. Unless he is God. And what's the effect of his saying that? What happens next? Look at verse 6. When Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. What's going on there? In the Greek, there are, are three words, the first of which means uh, motion away. The second one means back. And the third one means fall. All three of those 
combining. It's, it's like a stun grenade went off. Bam! And they fall to the ground. What happened? A little bit of glory leaked out. Just enough to show these soldiers the power of the name of the great I am. The power they were dealing with. Power that Jesus willingly held back. Again, what would you do if you had that kind of power? I'd want to use it to save myself. Think again about Jesus' temptation. If you are the Son of God, and here Satan would be saying, if you are the Son of God, you can get out of this. Just use some of your power. You can do that. You can get out of this. But you can't pit one attribute of God against another. Jesus didn't come to take care of himself. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, infinite in power, came to save us, not himself. He willingly held back the overwhelming power that was at his fingertips. In this passage, we see just enough of that power to let us know. Infinite in power. He held back. Third thing we can see here is this. Infinite in grace. He took the cup. Infinite in grace, he took the cup. Look at verses 10 and 11. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Peter goes for the sword. The word used suggests a, a short sword used in close combat. It can even mean dagger. And he uses that sword to cut off the ear of the temple servant whose name is Malchus. By the way, why would John give us the name? I think it's so that we can check it out. Um, Malchus or family members of Malchus would still be around at the time of John's writing. They were available to be asked. And I'm sure they had a great story to tell. Paul does something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He names a bunch of people that Jesus appeared to after the resurrection, and then he says, many of whom, or most of whom, are still living. In other words, ask them. Ask them. He invites that kind of investigation. So how did Peter end up cutting off this guy's ear? I, I think he was probably trying to take his head off, and Malchus ducked. John notes, interestingly, that it's Malchus's right ear. So picture Peter and Malchus standing face to face. Malchus's right ear is to Peter's left, right? 
If Peter's right-handed, like most people are, he's got this little sword hidden on his left side and draws it out. And as Malchus ducks, what happens? The ear is, is still there and catches the sword. Malchus ducked and loses part of his right ear. And interestingly, Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus healed the man's ear. That's grace. That's grace. And it probably saved Peter's life and may well have saved the life of the rest of the disciples who were there at that moment. And so in verse 9, uh, it says, This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Jesus is interested in letting these guys go. He's interested in giving himself up, infinite in grace. So he tells Peter to put the sword away, and he says he needs to drink the cup the Father has given him. So what's the cup? Well, the cup is referred to often in Scripture. If you did a search in your Bible app for cup, you would find a lot of references to it. Let me just share a couple of them with you. In Psalm 75, verse 8, it says, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. This is the cup of wrath. The wrath of God's fury and judgment that he has for the wicked to drink. Jesus is going to drink it. In Isaiah chapter 51, verse 22, it says this, This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. Why? Because Jesus took it for us. In the garden, Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, Jesus says, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, this cup of wrath, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus took the cup so that we wouldn't have to. He drank the cup of the wrath of God to keep us from having to drink it ourselves. Psalm 116 Verse 13 tells us that Jesus took the cup of wrath and drank it so that we could drink the cup of salvation. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Infinite in grace, he took the cup. The infinite knowledge of God, the infinite power of of God, the infinite grace of God. God is great. God is good. Jesus veiled his greatness 
to show us his goodness. Let's let our lives be a response to his greatness and his goodness. You'll find some questions for further thought in your program. I hope you can make use of those this week and uh, dig a little deeper into applying this passage in each of our own lives. Let's pray. Father, I'd have never thought that that table grace was as deep and as profound as it really is. You are great and you are good. Your word says your, your greatness no one can fathom. It's beyond our understanding. And yet Jesus veiled that greatness to show us his goodness. He held back on his power that could have saved him in order to save us. Father, I pray that we would leave here with a fresh appreciation for both your greatness and your goodness today. And if there's anyone here today that has not responded to the offer of salvation Jesus has made, this cup of salvation that we can drink because he drank the cup of wrath. I pray that that person would say, Lord Jesus, I see it now. You gave yourself for me. And so I invite you to come into my heart. Forgive me for my sin. Live in me and give me a relationship with you that goes on forever. So Father, I pray that all of us would be living in a relationship with you, that we would have a stronger appreciation for the greatness of your attributes, but also your goodness that would reach out to us and make us your very own through the shed blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.